turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. And while you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a story that I'll use to illustrate the message that God has given me to bring to you this morning. I'm a railroad guy, but during the 80s, I took a leave of absence from uh, my career with the railroad and worked uh, as an en route controller. And um, I was working in Albuquerque Center one night, um, and I'll tell this story to illustrate my point, that during, the, during that time, what we would do is we would take all the airspace, we would consolidate all of our airspace down to one sector. So it was just me and another guy that was working about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's just like you see in the movies, there's this big building that's actually hardened, and there's four rows of, you call them radar scopes, they're actually video displays, but they're big round things that we're looking at the airspace over. And, um, so we consolidated all of our airspace down to one sector, so it's just me and another guy. We have responsibility for a whole bunch of airspace. And at night, we would take back the airspace from Amarillo Approach Control. So we had Amarillo Airport as part of our responsibility as well. And so we're sitting there, and really, you, I don't know if I want to share this, but I will. But you don't have to pay too much attention because, really, there's not, many, there's not much chance of you running airplanes together at night. So, so we're there, and this guy... It's, it's night, and this guy comes up on the frequency, and he goes, uh, it's a real weak wave. Uh, Albuquerque Center. Uh, Albuquerque Center. Um, this is uh, Cessna 27 Charlie. Uh, um, I'm down here, and, and I'm a VFR pilot, and, and the weather is closed in, and I can't get down. Well, it's a problem. I said, okay, uh, Cessna 27 Charlie, we'll go ahead and give you a, uh, we're going to give you a code to squawk so that we can actually see you on our scope. And so I gave him that, and he put it in, and I can see him, and he's down there south of Amarillo flying around, bless his heart. And, and I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, don't worry about it. We're going to get you down. We're going to, we're going to vector you into the ILS on the runway in Amarillo. We're going to vector you right in there and you're going to be able to land at Amarillo International Airport, big wide runway, don't worry about it. Okay. So we, uh, we spend a lot of time, we vector him using radar vectors, and we get him all over the place, and then we get him lined up right on what they call the ILS, which is a radio beam that extends off the end of the runway there at, at Amarillo. And I've got him lined up, and he's about 40 miles out, and as I'm lining him up, the, uh, there's a Delta airliner that comes out of DFW, and they want to go to Amarillo. So here he comes, and I take, take him, and then I've got a Southwest airliner that comes out of Albuquerque, wants to go to Amarillo, and I take control of him, but i got this little guy that i got to kind of get down first. So I'm talking to the airliners, and I've got this guy, and I've got him lined up, and uh, he's right on the approach, and everything's looking good. And about that time, not only do we lose sight of him, but we lose communication with him. So I'll tell you the rest of the story later on in the sermon. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. <laughs> It'll serve to il illustrate the point that God has given me. Um. So we turned in our Bibles to Acts 17, 
We're going to continue the journey of Paul and Silas on this missionary journey that, where we found them getting uh, released from the jail in Philippi through a miraculous act. And so let's pick up, uh, this will be up on the Sky Bible as well, in Acts 17.1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see If these things were so, many of them therefore believed. Everybody say, were so. What these Bereans were doing was they were hearing this preaching and they were trying to determine whether or not what they were being told was lined up with the scriptures. The NIV reads uh, Acts 17.11 like this. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So, what we have here is we have Paul and Silas going into this city called Berea, and they're preaching this Messiah to the Bereans, the the Jews and, and the Greeks that are in Berea. And the Bereans were, according to the Bible, they were more noble, more noble. Who doesn't want to be noble? They were more noble than the other cities that that Paul and Silas had visited. And why? Because what they were doing is they were taking this truth that they were receiving from Paul and Silas. It was a truth. True preaching was was coming to them. And they were saying, hey, that's that's good stuff. I'm going to get back to you. And then they would probably go back away at night. They would get into the scriptures and they would say, yeah, this is lining up, lining up. So they were taking truth that they were hearing and they were checking it against the truth that they knew that they had in the form of the scriptures. And really it must have worked pretty well because, well, two things. Number one, the Bible says that many of them believed. So that worked. And also, we don't have a book or a letter to the Bereans written by Paul in our 
Bible. Now we got we've got letters to the Thessalonians and and other churches and the Corinthians in particular, and a lot of these letters are letters of correction or further expansion on the word that they received, but the Bereans must have got it because we don't have a book of the Bereans in the Bible. So today, as we, as we live and we walk in this world of, well, and please don't get me wrong here because I do not want to be political, but as we walk in this world of fake news, and we hear lies that are emanating almost from every direction. We, we, get, we hear lies that are coming from government officials and appointed officials. And, uh, and you know, we even see that some of our most noted institutions, uh, institutions of higher learning and corporate institutions and even religious institutions are, seem to be embracing what we know is not true and espousing false doctrine. That's the world that we're living in today. So today, as I talk to you, I want to really cover two overarching points. First point is this. This Bible, this word, is our standard. Just like the Bereans consulted it when they were hearing preaching, they went back to the Scriptures. They knew that this was the standard. This was the truth. This is the standard, and because they consulted this, they, they were more noble. And then I want to talk about the truth as it is depicted in what the Bible refers to as the Word, that being Jesus, the truth encapsulated in the man, the Word, capital T, capital W. Since we're um, entering the Christmas season, I was on my way back from the ranch the other day, and I heard this report of uh, a, a Pew Research Center poll that was just released just a few days ago, and it amazed me as I kind of heard these figures. Um, the Pew Research Center, which is supposed to be an independent polling organization, reached out to Americans, and they posed four questions to Americans this Christmas season. The four questions were, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe that Jesus was visited by the wise men? Do you believe that Jesus' birth was announced by an angel? And do you believe that Jesus, just like the Bible says, was laid in a manger as a baby? And what they did was they compared the results that they got in 2017 to the results that they had in 2014. And amazingly enough, if you poll all Americans, according to this poll, that um, the number of people, the number of Americans that believe all four of those Bible tenets regarding the birth of Jesus has declined from 65% in 2014 and now 57%. Only 57% believe all those things are true. Whoa. It's amazing, just three years. What the heck is going on? Here's, here's something that's even more, to me, more mind-blowing than that. And that is, if you poll Americans that call themselves Christians, and you ask them the same four things, 
Okay, now these are Christians. And you say, okay, Christians, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was visited by the Magi, that his birth was heralded by an angel, it was announced by an angel, and that he was literally as a baby laid in the manger, and the number of Christians that answer, yeah, I believe all of those things are true, has declined from 81% in um, 2014 to today, only 76% of Christians believe that. So one in four Christians don't believe that all those things are true. What the heck? What the heck is going on here? You know, I don't understand, you know, where, what church are they attending? You know, <clears throat> yeah, you can, brothers and sisters, you can sit under good preaching and teaching. And I believe that you get good preaching and teaching here in this body. Okay? And technology is wonderful. The technology has advanced to the point that today that we can reach out and we can go online or we can go through various sources. I listen to podcasts a lot. Um, and we can sit under some really good preaching and teaching. I mean, it's amazing, you know. But here's what I would say about this, and this is why I think that the Berean approach, what they did was so valuable. Because even though I sit under some good preaching and teaching, what I want to do is I want to make sure that I'm checking what I'm hearing against the 66 books that are contained, canonized in this book. Okay? Because obviously some, the wheels are coming off somewhere for Christians to say that, yeah, I don't believe all that stuff anymore. Right? I mean, they got to be sitting under some teaching, but what are they not doing? They're not checking it out. They're not being Berean about it. Here's the thing. You know, when I take this book and I pick it up, and I spend time in it, here's what I know is happening. I spend time in these 66 books, and I go through and I, I'm embracing God's truth by spending time in this book. And I'm reading about the awesomeness and the love and the mercy and the, and the creativity of an almighty God. And I'm looking at God's power and, and I'm seeing that God has a plan for me and God has a plan for my wife and my family and God has a plan for this church and God has a plan for His kingdom here on earth and He is executing that plan. And I look in this, the 66 books here and I, I'm seeing Jesus presented more clearly in both the Old and the New Testaments. And I, I look in this book and and I'm being better prepared to discern error and lies that are being presented to me. And I could go on and on and on about the benefits about, of being in this book and spending time in this book. I mean, 2 Timothy 3.16 says it like this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word, all Scripture is breathed out. The word breathed out is the word in Greek, theonoustos. In other words, literally breathed by God. And so where else do we see 
that whole concept of, of God breathing in creation. That's right. God scooped up clay or dust and He breathed His Spirit into it. And in a very similar fashion, according to this passage, that God took this Scripture and He breathed truth into it. So there is a connection between me as a God-created being and this Scripture that is full of God-breathed truth and revelation. Very similar. I don't know if you've ever given any thought to it, but there's this connection because God has breathed on both of us. Abiding in this book, according to Jesus, comes with a promise. In, in, in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8, um, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, when, when Jesus says this term, my word, in that particular gospel, it's a big deal because there is a completely different definition for my word when it comes to John's gospels, according to Strong's. My word implies, when Jesus says it in this passage, implies that Jesus is literally ministering. He is the minister of God's truth here on the earth. I mean, they take it to a whole different level, which is exactly what Jesus is implying. And who doesn't want to, I mean, personally, I want, I want to be in truth, and I want to be set free. Don't you? I mean, we all do. I want to be in truth, and I want, want to be and we all want to be set free. So here's the first point that I want to make is I want to encourage each of you to really discipline yourselves to spend more time in this book. And I think that it's becoming more and more and more important as we see the days advance. Because of what we're facing out there in the world right now, and out there in our culture, we really need to begin to embrace all of the truth and only the truth that is contained in these 66 books. Now, I know that there's a lot of challenges for all of us to spend time for our time. How do we spend time? I mean, we've got so many things that are going on. Our families are demanding time, and, and we live in an age where we can watch TV, watch whatever we want on TV, and, and, and we've just got a lot of things going on. My challenge to you today is to do what it takes, and I'm preaching to myself as well, so don't get me wrong, but my challenge is to make sure that you're carving out some time to get into this book, to get into this book and really exposing yourself to the truth as contained in this book. More important now than ever before, brothers and sisters. And I believe that God really is directing us to do exactly that. Matter of fact, what I'd like to do at this point is just, can I just pray over us so that God would, would uh, help us with that? You just bow your heads and we'll stand in agreement together.
Father, I, I thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you for your truth, Lord. I thank you for your people that are sitting under this message this morning, Father God. And I thank you, Lord God, that you will help all of us, Lord, uh, renew our desire for your word, Father God. Give us the ability to carve out some time. You are the God who literally stopped time. And we've seen you do it several times. So give us the time to spend more time in your word. Give us a desire and a discipline to spend more time in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now I want to shift gears just a little bit. We'll go on to the second part of this message that God has given me to, to speak. And that is, I want to talk about Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Yay. 700 years ago, since we're in this Christmas season, 700 years ago, the or 700 years actually before the, these events took place, I should say, 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah made a remarkable statement, and he just, it's just a few remarkable words to me. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we hear this little phrase, this little pair of child is born, son is given, during this Christmas season in particular. We hear it all the time. One of the things I want to stop and, and, and cause us all to think about is that God, yes, we see a child born and we celebrate that next week. But the second part of this is so important because it implies that the son his son was given to us. And a lot of times when we say this, we miss this part of it. God saw fit to give us a son. As a matter of fact, he knew that we needed a son. For so many reasons. Not the least of which is truth. So this child that we celebrate the birth of next week grew up and on the night before his crucifixion, he was talking to his disciples, and Thomas, the disciple Thomas, who gets a bad rap, but I think really is a good guy, the guy that took the gospel to India, um, is asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, you say you're going away, but we don't know the way. And Jesus looks at this disciple Thomas and he makes this remarkable statement. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus at this point is declaring himself as the truth that we need. Matter of fact, I think this, this triplet that he, he makes here is all important for us because what he's done is he's, he's encapsulated his entire life. When he says that I am the way, this implies that God sent me as a child. And then he says, I am the truth. He's saying, I am living my life out before you. Look at me. I am the truth. I am the absolute. And then he says, I am the life. And so he took that truth and he went to the cross and he died for us being perfect. 
And he showed us, and he overcame death, and he showed us the life, every one of us. So it's such a profound statement that Jesus makes here. And just a few hours after he makes this statement, he's dragged before Pilate. And Pilate is really grilling Jesus, and Jesus is not defending him. And Pilate asks a remarkable question. He says, what is truth? Think how ironic this is that the embodiment is tr- of truth is standing before this governor, Pilate. And of course, Pilate doesn't see it. What Pilate is asking is standing right before him. Truth. Truth is standing there in his presence. It's amazing. We sit there and we think, man, Pilate, what? You know, you're missing it. But the Bible tells us in 1 John 5 that the whole world has been given over, at least for now, to the evil one. That is the father of lies. Right? That's the world that we're living in. So the whole world is seeking truth. We're all seeking truth. As a matter of fact, I believe that what was breathed into us is that part that is a truth-seeking. It's truth-seeking. And so when we hear truth, when we see truth out of the Bible or in the form of Jesus, that's the only, that's the only thing that can fulfill that void, that can fill that void, is the truth of God, the truth as it's embodied in Jesus. This world brothers and sisters, for right now, has been given over to the evil one. And I want to tell you a story that uh, will kind of serve to illustrate how bad it is and how bad we are beginning to see it become. G.K. Chesterton, um, in the early 1900s, G.K. Chesterton was a famous apologist. He was a playwriter, a a writer of of stories, uh, a strong Christian, Um, And he wrote a play, and I'm going to broadly paraphrase this play so that I can illustrate this point for you. Um, The play is called Magic. And it seems that this magician, the play calls it the conjurer, comes into this town, and he is engaged by this rich man in the town to perform illusions for the enjoyment of of his family. And, And the rich man has a nephew and the nephew is a doctoral student in some kind of science, but really knows everything. You know the kind, right? So every time the, the, the conjurer would perform an illusion, the doctoral student, the young man, would say, well, I know how you did that, and he would provide a scientific explanation for what the conjurer was doing. So he would perform this trick, conjure, the Doctoral students say, okay, here's the scientific explanation. Well, this went on and on and on, and finally the conjurer kind of got tired of it, and just before his show, he encountered this doctoral student, and he talked to the doctoral student, and he says, listen, you know that light that's above your house? He said, yes, I do. He said, what color is that light? And the doctoral student said, well, it's red. 
And he said, that's correct. He says, and has it been read for the entire time that you've lived in the house? He says, it's always been read. He says, well, what if I told you that right now, even as we speak, I'm sending two angels over to your house to change that red light to green? And the doctoral student says, well, it can't be. You can't do that. Come on. So he hurries out of the show, and he goes over to his house, and sure enough, when he gets to the house, the light is green. Whoa. So he hurries back to where the magician is, the conjurer, and he says, how did you do that? He doesn't have a scientific explanation. And the conjurer says, listen, I told you, I sent two angels over there to change the red light to green. And he says, no, it can't be. There's no way that you could do that. And he said, yes, it's true. I sent two angels over there. So the young man, the doctoral student, retires to his home. He has a lab, a scientific lab in his home. And he immediately begins to try to figure out how this could happen, that this red light could turn to green. And he's performing all kinds of experiments, and he's doing all kinds of things, and he's not sleeping, and he's not eating, and he's, 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 he's completely obsessed with this to the point where he's becoming literally insane. He's literally on the verge of insanity. So his sister comes over to visit the young man and discovers that her brother is almost insane trying to figure out how this could happen, that the red light could turn to green. So she hurries back to the magician and she says, listen, you've got to help my brother. He's almost insane. He's over there. He can't sleep. He doesn't eat. All he tries to do is figure out what you did to turn, change the red light to green. And, and the conjurer says, Madam, I told your brother the truth. I sent two angels over there to change the red light to green. She says, no, it can't be. He says, no, it's the truth. That's exactly what I did. And she turns to him and she says, well then, tell him a lie. Wow. Well then, tell him a lie. So who's insane? The young man receives the news. He receives a lie. And he walks out of what he thinks is insanity, but walks into insanity. This is what we're faced with today, brothers and sisters. The people, people can't really... I mean, this is the results of the, of the poll that, that I just cited. People can't believe that God is doing what God has said He will do and has done in this book. Is it miraculous? Yes, it is miraculous. It's God. But it's the truth. It's the truth. This is the truth. It's absolute. It's never changing. It never yields. It never moves. It doesn't respond to sexual revolutions or, or cultural changes. It never changes. It doesn't care about polling data. It doesn't care about man's laws. This truth doesn't care about how many Facebook lights it gets. It doesn't care. This truth, brothers and sisters, is our standard and it's our example. It's the place from which we mark all other truth. This has to be it. There has to be an absolute. And I praise God 
that he gave us an absolute. Earlier I told you that I'd finish up the story about the lost little airplane. <clears throat> that we lost contact with. So I can't see the little guy on my radar display any longer. I can't speak with him. He's not answering the radio. And at the time, there was a flight service station, an FAA office in Amarillo. We call them Amarillo Radio as a controller. And I had direct contact with them, so I poked the button and I say, hey, Amarillo Radio, this is Albuquerque Center. <laughs> he says, Amarillo Radio. I said, could you go out there and look and see if a Cessna's landed on the runway out there? I got to know where he's at. So I hear the door open, you know, and hear him walking around out there, and then I hear the door close, and he comes back in. He, hey, Albuquerque Center. I said, yeah. He says, there ain't, there, there's no plane out here. Really? Nobody's landed? No. No, there's nobody out there. I'm like, whoa. I'm talking to this Delta airliner out of DFW, and finally I tell him kind of what's going on, and the Delta airliner says, well, listen, we're, we're going to go ahead and we're going to return to, you know, I can't clear the airliner in to the runway because I don't know where this guy is. I don't know if he's stacked up, crashed on some runway. So I talk to the Delta airliner, and I tell them what's going on, and they say, hey, listen, we're going to go back to DFW. I said, okay, clear direct Bridgeport. Talking to the Southwest airliner, and I've got him holding over the Vortac at Amarillo. It's a navigational aid. And I'm telling him what's going on. He says, well, we'll wait for a little while, see what's going on. Amarillo Radio, this is Albuquerque Center. Could you go back out there and check and see if that little guy landed? Yeah. Goes back out there. Comes back on. No, he's not here. Oh my gosh, what happened? Talking to the Southwest Airliner now and trying to decide what we're going to do. And then I get a call. Hey, Albuquerque Center, this is Amarillo Radio. Yeah? Listen, I just got a call from the sheriff's office here in Amarillo. I said, you did? Yeah, they found that guy. I said, well, what happened? Well, he was coming in to the runway, and he looked out, and he saw I-40, and he landed on Interstate 40. <laughs> he what? He said, yeah. He saw the lights of Interstate 40, and he landed. They got the interstate closed off. I said, well, good enough. I said, Southwest 729, cleared for approach Amarillo, because I knew where this guy was now, so I could clear the Southwest airliner in. But here's what happened. Number one, the guy that was flying that plane had received the truth. We'd give him, him every, all the information that he needed to get down safely. But he didn't believe what we were telling him. He didn't check it out. He didn't check it out. When he saw the lights, that was it. He was landing. That's how it is for so many of us. We want to hear something that's easy. We want to hear something and we want to see something that's safe. So this guy took the easy way out. He took the safe, what he thought was the safe way out 
As a result of landing on the interstate, number one, he lost his pilot's license for sure. Number two is that they had to tow that little airplane off the interstate, and at some point in time they had to get it cranked back up and fly it to a little airport, so he incurred all kinds of expense. And number three, he really inconvenienced the heck out of all those people that were on that Delta flight, and he delayed everybody that was on that Southwest flight. He certainly didn't see that. But that's what happened. What happened? He didn't believe the truth. He wanted to take the easy way out. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe this truth. Amen? Amen. I'm going to call the um, worship team back up now, and we'll worship a little bit given the nature of this word that, that I've just given you. And as, as they're coming up, I want to just tell you one other thing that comes as a result of, it's a, a benefit of being in this word. I want to read you some of the lyrics from a worship song called Seeing You by Matt Redmond. While they're coming up here onto the platform behind me. And it says, this is a time for seeing and singing. This is a time for breathing you in and breathing out your praise. Our hearts respond to your revelation. All you are showing, all we have seen commands a life of praise. No one can sing of things they have not seen. God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. The glory of you, the glory of you, God, open our eyes towards a greater glimpse. Worship starts with seeing you. Our hearts respond to your revelation. The more that we spend in this book, the more revelation that we get of God, the more revelation that we see of Jesus, the easier it is to enter into a place of worship so that we can raise our hands and we can praise and worship the Most High God for who He is. Let the be of mine, 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 let